0: You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me personally, I put really high expectations on myself, and that can get really stressful. And many times it's kind of hard to talk to friends and family members about those things, and I need to speak to a professional. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line, it's not self help, it's professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash BGN. That's better H E L P and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. For black girl nerds, listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash BGN. That's betterhelp.com forward slash BGN and get 10% off your first month.
1: Girl shake Yeah, shake shake your booties for Black for Black Girl Nerds.
0: Happy New Year and welcome to this episode of The Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This is an exciting episode, guys. We're bringing in the new year with a special guest. And I'm here with my co-host, Ryan. And Angelica is going to be joining us later on, hopefully soon. She's got a little bit of technical difficulties going on, but she should be joining us shortly. But I'm really excited to bring this guest back on. He's been on our show before. He is an amazing comedian actor multi-hyphenate amazing man that has done so many great works the incomparable the legendary the one the only orlando jones thank you for coming on the black girl nerds podcast orlando oh hello oh. are you not hearing me oh there, there we, we go. go now we can hear there you we go it.
2: Sorry about that. I was looking around during that introduction, wondering who you was talking to. I'm sorry. I must have got lost. I was like,
0: "No, you didn't."
2: She said, "Legendary." I was like, Ooh, Oh, this is ridiculous." Thank you. That was very kind. Of- <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for coming back on our show. We really appreciate it, and it's such a pleasure to talk to you again.
2: Now back at you. It's, it's been too long. We ain't hit no parties together. Or nothing. Y'all been. Y'all been stingy with the party invites lately, so I'm not going to get into how, you know, hurt I was that I didn't get no recent parties to the black girl nerds get down. But, you know, it's all good. I ain't gonna cry no more.
1: Oh, they didn't let you in VIP. I'm sorry about that.
2: No, no, they did not let me in VIP. They asked me who I was and who I came with, and they told me I ain't had no armband and I had to leave. It was shameful.
3: Well, you, you know, know They should get Look, you they,
1: they
2: was trying to, they was trying to Amanda Seals me, and I was just like a man. Wow. I was like, wait a minute! Wow,
0: wow, you really pulled that out, Amanda Seals. Man, I was, like, up,
2: yeah. I was mad for her. I was like, they did what, girl? Huh?
0: <laughs> you left me out the door
3: <laughs> a,
2: a publicist. What happened? <laughs> ain't nobody back you up.
0: Uh uh-uh, uh uh uh. No, they the didn't. You ain't on the list. No, no. We we're gonna have mm-hmm. to make up for that. We will have to make for up real. for real. For real. Well, Orlando, f- first yeah. of all, thank you for coming on our show. Cause you have been on the news lately. <laughs> a lot. Uh, yeah. You, you've kind of been out there. Um, yes. I mean, right now, <laughs> if you Google your name, it's everywhere. And uh, we want to talk about it. What, what has been going on? We've obviously heard a lot of about the recent controversies surrounding your, you're firing at American Gods. What What is the latest update that you can share with us now about where you are with, with that and with Fremantle?
2: I think the latest update is, is what SAG's response was, which is obviously that they're investigating the situation. So they'll be uh, updating and reporting more on that soon enough. And aside from getting a uh, a message, a screenshot from my management team uh, of uh, a DM that I got sent presumably from a, a relative of uh, the showrunner, uh, Mr. Egley I think it's his sister or something, uh, sent me a DM on Facebook just cussing me out six ways to Sunday. So I got a, a chuckle out of that and and posted it accordingly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, that was it's, that was it's a sort lot. of
2: a fascinating situation to me on a lot, lot of man. different levels because, you know, obviously I didn't know who she was, and I certainly wasn't, you know, on my page looking for DMs. So when it got sent to me, you know, I was right, kind of right. I was a little surprised that you know somebody would. That I was surprised that someone close to him or a family member, obviously, of his would say some of the things she was saying, but the most surprising part of it is to look at, you know, sort of the egregiously unkind, ridiculous, you know, comments she's made about Kaepernick uh, and the NFL and, you know, various other issues that are sort of in keeping with this sort of alt-right things that you consistently hear from those who care about politics. But it was just kind of surprising because I'm like, man, for someone who says and claims to care so much about, you know, black culture and love it so much, you got some family dynamics going on that's crazy because this person clearly doesn't agree with you, but they're defending you and cussing me out. So I, it's just a weird scenario to find yourself in. Um it really does feel like a, a little bit of twilight zone where uh, people do the most obvious things and then they swear that you're the person. So it's, it's like, it's not me, it's you, it's you. I'm like, I, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's so cartoonish on some levels. So simpleton, like right, right. on some levels, but um, if there is going to be a claim of, of mm-hmm. not holding uh racially charged, biased ideas uh, by the Egley family, that certainly got blown up <laughs> with that message pretty, <laughs> and the posts that you know have been made by her over the years. So it's all kind of crazy because I don't know why she would even say any of those things to me. I mean, obviously, I don't know that lady. That's just insane.
0: Okay, so just to give our listeners some context on what you're talking about, there's a screenshot that's currently on your Instagram feed um from charles egley who is the showrunner for american gods his wife apparently insulting you is that correct
2: i don't think is. i don't think that's his wife i believe that is his sister
0: oh his sister okay
2: yeah so basically yeah
1: because i thought it was a wife too yeah and so you just explained yeah that, so yeah.
2: basically i got a uh, you know this got sent to me as a dm and uh And obviously, when you look at the name, it's the same last name as him, except there's another last name at the end. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's his sister. She's from Boston. Um, And she's cussing me out. You're a non-talent and you're spoiled and, you know, and you're a douchebag and all this madness. So this was sent to me in a DM and uh, I didn't see it until my management team brought it to my attention. But again, obviously, when you get a message like that, the first thing you do is go, who the hell just sent me this? So naturally, I went to that person's page right. to see who this person was. And as I'm going through the page, I see, you know, the, the 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 things that people say, right? You know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you know, she's mm-hmm. definitely got the libtard rhetoric and the, you know, Colin Kaepernick with his face photoshopped on a woman's body uh, and, you know, making the comments that go along with, you know, calling him out for being, you know, I guess a, a crybaby or a woman. I don't I don't really get the insult, right? It's it's basically just how do you defame Colin Kaepernick for, for taking a knee? So when I look at the the things that I've said on American Gods, which speak directly to that, and I look at the things this woman has posted, clearly she would not be a Mr. Nancy fan. And clearly the things that Mr. Nancy would have said, she would find uh, insulting and she would find that to be, you know, a, a whiny ass black person who need to go back to Africa would be clearly based on her post, her point of view about the character that I played. So not surprising that she would call me a douchebag, not surprising that she would attack me personally and professionally, but a little surprising that, you know, you're the showrunner for American Gods. Most of the characters on that show are, are people of color. The lead of that show is a biracial man. You're wearing Black Panther t-shirts and stay woke hats telling people that You know, you write from a black male perspective, acting like you're a black man, pretending you are a black man, making comments about what you think is right or wrong for black culture. Yet clearly, you know, you got some real racist shit going down in your family. So surprising to get that message and that affirmation, because the funniest part of this entire process is. I am here. Where did you lose me?
0: Orlando, I think we lost. I you. said the
2: frustrating part of that process. Angelica, you there? That, here's this. This man is. I didn't say this man's name, so you know that that happened through the natural uh, process. The frustrating part of that process was cro- shocked to me. Is you are wearing a stay woke black pan stay woke hat, black panther shirts, red, black, and green wristbands. You're telling people you write from a black male perspective. You're on a show that has a biracial black male lead. You clearly claim to be down for the culture. You clearly love the culture, but your sister is, is posting some crazy racist stuff all over her Facebook page. So, so so, I mean, she's not trying to hide it at all. And she's sending me a message defending me, I'm sorry, defending him. but. It's all out of balance, right? If you care so mm. much about black wow. culture, why is your sister such mm. a racist unless you, in fact, are a racist yourself? I don't, I don't understand. Or maybe that's just your sister and that's not you. That's, so, that's certainly possible. But it all just seems like, again, it all just seems crazy. Angelica's here. I just wanted to say that's what I wanted to say.
0: Hey, Angelica! Wow. Uh, yeah. and part, of oh, no, go ahead, Ryan. I keep stepping on. You. I just wanted we to just, say I'm bro. over here just talking about I the just craziness to say that we of, have Angelica of, of, with us. As right.
2: things have unfolded, this entire process has gotten yeah, crazy Angelica and crazier, and the latest one you heard is just like, okay. I mean, if that's how y'all doing in your family, go ahead. <laughs> It, it it is a it's a lot but you know for me the crazy components of it uh and not to overuse the word crazy is i still am not exactly sure what i did to the studio the network or the new showrunner i i can't figure out what misstep you know i mean you my, my first reaction when something you know like this happens is to go well before you start pointing the finger at other people what did you do wrong Like what, what could you have done better? Um, you know, where did you fall short? And, you know, I honestly look at it and go, I don't think this has anything to do with me. This is just people making moves based on their own feelings and their own perceptions. And, you know, I understand that, you know, people don't want to call that racist. So I tell people to look at all the facts and you tell me what the word is because I can't figure out what this is or what, whatever y'all want to call it this week. (laughs) It's definitely got some issues. (laughs) I mean, the truth of the matter is it's – hold on. It's cartoon racist. I mean racism has an wow. element of stupidity to it, right. but this is racist on a lot of levels, right? There, there's a tremendous amount of privilege that goes with making those type of statements with as little knowledge as, as, as this lady would have, unless she's read through my contract and is aware of what my negotiation conversations were like. And my manager's conversations were like with Fremantle and stars over the hiatus. She really is entirely ill-equipped to comment. You know what I mean? You know, so for me, but that didn't stop her from feeling, uh, that she had the right to, that she was entitled to, and that that privilege was hers. And to me, that's, That's the craziness. That's that's the amount of privilege that people step with. And it's the same privilege that, you know, he's moving with, which is to run around and say to people that my character isn't right for black America. That's a tremendous amount of privilege to make that statement, primarily because the person who created my character in the context of American gods is a white man. So it was okay for the white man to say that. And it was okay for the two white writers to write. The speech on the slave ship, that was that was totally fine. Everybody was fine with that. The studio was fine with that. The network was fine with that. Everybody was cool with angry get shit done as long as it came from two white guys. But the second, um, uh, I guess it came out of my mouth, well, now that's a problem. Or if you look at the, the snatched speech from season two, that wasn't okay. But again, they never denigrated the previous showrunners for any of that. They exalted them for that work. So it's OK for white people to talk about the black experience, is the messaging there. But it's not OK for a black man to talk about the black experience. that That's, to me, the craziness of it all, right? Get rid of the black guy who wrote season two so that you would have a job as the son of season three. Obviously, I worked with other people to write season two. But as Neil Gaiman said, there are no secrets about me being a major part of getting season two completed. But that's a black man writing for characters of color and collaborating with Kaiyun Kim and collaborating with Yatide Badaki because I don't presume to be able to write from a black female's perspective, but I presume to be able to talk to Yatide Badaki to understand what she thinks is important about her character and to write from that perspective with her guidance and knowledge and artistry as a part of it, which is the very thing that they don't do. But again, I do that because I want to afford the respect to that artist. To bring what they bring to the table and I bring what I bring to the table and we work together because I got sense enough to know it's always the singer and it's never the song. But see, he thinks it's the song. It's him. It's all about these individuals. And I, I look at all those components together and go um, white privilege um, and um, ignorance, um, some discriminatory practices, um, a lot of disrespect. You want to roll that into a ball and call that what it is, then that's what we call systemic racism. That's what we're looking at with Fremantle. That's what we're looking at with the fact that a major studio and a major network could all sign off on this. And you know, when I look at what Gabrielle Union was talking about and what others have talked about, there was nobody in that process to be able to say to anyone else, hey, guys, this guy here thinks he's black and he's a white man, and he's knocking on the doors of 70." He's 69 years old, 68 years old.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that either. But you also use um, Orlando culture, uh, culture Vulture, which I thought was interesting. Um, could you kind of explain that a little bit, like when it comes to... Because you kind of already went into it a little bit, but I just thought that really resonated with me because I feel like I know some people that this term could fit, but you don't think about it like that.
2: Well, he wasn't raised in Black culture. Right. He, he's not a part... He's not a part of the culture. You know, when you look at artists like Eminem, people can say what they want, but he grew up in the culture. He grew up where he grew up with. Poverty mm-hmm. makes strange bedfellows. So he's not being, that's not a culture vulture. You know what I'm saying? You know, but this man did not grow up. I mean, grew up in the in the culture. You know, mm-hmm. he grew up in Boston. Right. Okay. And in his household, we now know by virtue of the comments his family member just made that his Family members don't care nothing about the black culture. <laughs> that, that, that's not important to them.
0: How did he even come to do the show in the first place? Right. but But again,
2: that's somebody at at, at Fremantle and somebody at Stars, and that would be Dante DiLoretto at Fremantle. And I'm assuming someone at Stars. I imagine it was, you know, uh, Carmi Zlotnick, uh, who would have been the person to make that decision at Stars. Those two people decided, that this guy was the right person to come in and show run season three. Mm. That, that decision was made by a studio and a network. And my point is that while this man was walking around saying things like I write from a black male perspective, it's not like any black person was who he said those sorts of things to had the confidence or, or shall we say the, the, the guts to say hey man that's not cool now had he been had he been saying some other things i mean I, you know I, you know maybe somebody would have stepped up but there was nobody who stepped up and said to him hey what you're saying is problematic don't you shouldn't be saying those things and that's my point where, where is that? The diversity that you speak of doesn't isn't there, because if it was, y'all would have noticed that this was a problem. <laughs> he didn't hide it. I mean, he was saying this to friends I know 15, 20 years, right as I known forever. They hit me up at the blue going, hey, you doing American Gods? Yeah, this dude's the new showrunner. This guy's got a real bone to pick with you. And I'm like, really? Why you got a bone to pick with me? I never spoke to him. But I know his name, but. I haven't spoken to him. My manager's been talking to the studio and the network, and I know that they're going to come back to me once they figure out they're creative, but what's he saying? Well, you know, and they're running down what he's saying, you know, which um, in, in essence was my character's bad for black America. Uh, Brian Fuller and Michael Green messed it up when they did what they did. And, uh, you know, this is a mess. And you know, the, the end result of it was the perception that, this nearly 70 year old white man thinks he's blacker than me. I mean, that was the, that's the, that's what I'm saying. Clown cartoon. (laughs) Like, wait, you blacker than me. What are you talking about? Are you for real right now? Uh, I (laughs) believe that if you want to.
0: (laughs) Mr. Nancy, he has such a significant role on American gods. And I'm curious to know, have you had a conversation with Neil Gaiman yet about all this and maybe see getting involved with getting the rights to the Anansi boys.
2: You know, Gaiman is, I have to say, been a, a real gentleman through the process. I haven't spoken to him since this has happened, obviously, because frankly he's an executive producer on the show and he can't and shouldn't speak to me right now. Um, uh, in that way, but we have talked about Anansi boys, um, another company has the rights to it, but uh, my understanding is it's something that they would like to pursue, but, you know, Neil Gaiman's got a lot of stuff going on, so, you know, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I don't know that that's going to happen or isn't going to happen. They've been talking to me about that project off and on now for two years. Uh, so, know. Yeah. Okay. Um,
3: well, Um, I did have a question for you. So, I mean, I've read American Gods, right? And Anansi, Mr. Nancy was kind of a, he was a trickster, obviously, derived from that God. But you kind of brought, I want to say, like spice to the role. Like what made you go with, I guess, the angry anger? What inspired you to add that type of energy to the character?
2: Well, when I had the first conversation about the character with with Brian Fuller and Michael Green, we were really just talking about you know where the character came from and a lot about how the character had been put together and rendered in, in American Gods and in in this in the slave ship speech you know you know angry get shit done was a part of it so I, you know it was really kind of blatantly there in the text um, that to me the, the 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 problem or the trick of it was that. Nobody wants to listen to somebody who's just angry all the time. Like that's not, that's not a voice or a sound that you want to hear. So a lot of it right. for me was to try and turn it away from that and really choose those moments carefully. And for me, it was more about him not being, he's not a, he's not a victim, right? Right. And I always feel like that's the part that always right. I think gets lost because we are consistently being portrayed even by people of color. It's consistently the victim story and we're always fighting some banal, stupid version of racism where somebody called you the N-word or treated you disrespectfully when racism is a lot more insidious and a lot, more, a lot trickier than that. And a lot of times we experience racism from people who look just like us, you know what I mean, who've been brainwashed by the system. So – For me, it was about making sure that you could hear what he was saying and understand what he was saying and understand the place that he's saying it from. And the truth of the matter is, Nancy doesn't care that these people killed themselves on that ship. Mm. Dying in his name of worship is is all he cares about. Mm. He needs your worship. He's not he's not he wasn't trying to necessarily Mm. set you free. He's setting you free with the knowledge. But he's not setting you free in the sense that you're going to leave that ship alive, right? It's a it's a delicate balance, right? He's, he's very much like a preacher who doesn't believe, but who preaches so good he can get you stirred up in the Word and you can feel like the Spirit is touching you, except the messenger that you're hearing it from mm-hmm. is far from pure. And for me, that's what Michael and Brian and I discussed, and that's really the part of it I wanted to get because one of the mm-hmm. trickiest parts about life is sometimes – empowering powerful messages come from really screwed up messengers you have to, you know and sometimes complete nothing comes from very devout messengers so you know sometimes we have to realize that it's a lot more complicated than we want it to be right the message and the messenger don't always come together like none of us are hundred percent pure you know there's the yin, there's the yang there's the good there's the bad and I really wanted Nancy to have all of those characters so I wanted him to have the humor and I, I wanted him to have the, the vision, the long sight on what's happened uh, to the culture and how the culture has been attacked. But by the same token, I wanted him to be able to tell you a story that would, would stir you and resonate you and get you to worship. So those are really the balances that I was trying to, to, to put together. But when he calls you to action against your own injustice— I think he has to tap into your anger because I think that's the part that that we as people of color or any disenfranchised group, that's what we get robbed of. People want to treat you like trash and then tell you you don't have the right to get angry because that, you know, that doesn't have decorum. That's not being classy. So you're supposed to get pissed on and then you're supposed to sit there and wipe the piecemeal off you and act like it was rain and sunshine. And and that really robs an integral part of what it means to be human. You know what I mean? We're not allowed to have anger about our experience. Right. We're not allowed those those other emotions that uh, that that we're seeing right now right we, we, right now I, I I hear lots of white supremacists angry as hell I see lots of white people who feel like this country is becoming too black and some Republicans right you know, and, and but, you know and by the way and, and I'm sure plenty of Democrats too right I mean if, if, if right, yeah. right if, if we're being honest people who say the nice thing but still do the do do nothing uh, you know they might be saying something sweet to you but they're still not doing anything so I, yeah, I understand yeah, that yep. there's a systemic part of this whole thing where different people do different things but, but create the same outcome. Right. And, and that for me is really kind of what I wanted Nancy to both see and respond to and call out. And I also wanted him in his stories to be able to really break it down in a way where you couldn't – so often in entertainment, it's easy to dismiss it as entertainment. I didn't want him to be that. And that for me in season two was really the most difficult part of the job because Brian Fuller and Michael Green set the bar so high with the slave ship. And even the second speech in the season finale for season one where he lays out the story of Bilquis, I mean, as it relates to the history of women dealing with men, that, that's a powerful speech. It, it truly outlines what the female experience as queen and as ruler was, not the female experience as a victim. And that's what's so powerful about the second one. And it's telling Vilquist's story, you know? So that's what I wanted to do with the character. That's what I thought was important about the character. That's what I hadn't seen before in film or television. And I really was excited about the opportunity to do that. And I assumed because they had both written it and hired me that the studio and the network were on board with that. Until I found myself in this situation where apparently not.
0: <laughs> there were some pretty phenomenal um, pieces of the set on uh, American Gods. And I know, Ryan, you had a question right. about that.
1: Yeah, I just kind of wanted to know, like, because you kind of touched on it a little bit with like being on a slave ship and the mm-hmm. carousel ride. Like I was figuring some of those guys had to be on either substances when they got on the carousel ride or maybe like afterwards, because that thing was a little trippy. And then like just being in like a funeral, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, funeral
2: home, funeral parlor.
1: Yeah, like a funeral home. Yeah, and you have like three African gods, in that scene it was like super powerful. And I was just kind of wondering what the atmosphere on set was like when you guys are in those on those different sets and everything.
2: To be honest with you, I had just written that scene about two days beforehand. Previously, that scene yeah. was supposed to be about us. Uh, having a conversation about a white God that was a white Jesus that would, was hanging in, in, in the funeral parlor. And when I read it, I was like, there's just no way. We, we already established on the show that there are many different iterations of Jesus. You're telling me that three African gods are having a discussion about a white God? Why? Why? I mean, why would they care? They only care. I mean, they care about themselves. They care about their own worship. But why on earth would they be discussing some white God? Why would that be important to them at all? Um, So that was just weird. And so I was like, I can't do that. That doesn't make any sense to me. But what does make sense to me (laughs) is what you just said. I couldn't get my head off the fact. This is the first time in this show three African gods have been in the same room together. They and there and there is apparently a war going on that we have set up in against season one. So what would Mm -hmm. they be talking about as it relates to that war? And that's what I wrote because for me, that scene is about a lot of things. But you know, it's it's more about embarrassing and luring Bilquis to the side of the old gods, and it's also about Nancy's desire for Bilquis. but for me, that's also because Nancy's backstory, which is what got me into this whole mess, as it were, I had just written. I mean, when I was at House on the Rock, we had just started shooting and Neil Gaiman had come up to me and asked me to write a character Bible. And when I wrote the character Bible and sent it to him, he sent me back, you know, in all caps. I fucking love it. Spread it around. Well, in that character Bible, one of the things that I I wrote because it's true is mm. Anansi is the god of the Ashanti people of Ghana and the Ashanti people of Ghana were a matriarchy. They were not a patriarchy. Men couldn't rule. Only women could rule. And Anansi is the child of Asasaya, <laughs> uh, the goddess of fertility and like agriculture and growth and his Uh, She's the god. She's the goddess of goddesses. Right. She she is the and his father is um, the sky god. So he is born of the king of gods and shall we say the goddess of all goddesses. But he's born into a matriarchy. So in that configuration, his father's job is to serve his mother. And even though he is their child, he's never going to rule because he's a man. That's the society he's born into. So the cult that he's a part of says men can't rule, which to me is the only reason he would have made this long speech at the end of season one, telling Mr. Nancy and telling Mr. Wednesday to get yourself a queen. He wasn't talking about Astara, Easter. He was talking about Bilquis, because that's who we show. So why did he believe getting that queen was so important? So the queen he's talking about was Bilquis in that point. So to me, he's going to be in a room with Bilquist now. They're going to get a chance to talk. What's that conversations about? And that conversation to me had to be about, hey, they're they're killing women of color like like it's going out of style right about now. And you trying to play the middle? You don't know if you're going to be with the old gods or the new gods for real? And you in here hanging out with death? He don't <laughs> he care. Definitely
1: look like he didn't care either.
2: I mean, right. as long as but the dead body like show he
1: didn't
2: up, care. right? Exactly. He didn't care at all. Why would he care? He's the he's the god of yeah. death. He's the keeper of the secrets of the gods. So for me, it was that dynamic that made that interesting. And they both have designs on Bill. Mm-hmm. she's the goddess of love. Of course, you have designs on her. So there's a a god, a male god rivalry playing out with the idea of getting yourself a queen. But for me, it was just keeping Nancy focused on what we had shared with and built with fans in season one, which was he finally had a moment to lay out to that queen directly why it was so important to him as the child of a matriarchy and as a worshiper of goddesses, that this was something that they needed to come apart with, that she needed to come on board with. And presumably in that moment, she's open to the conversation. The person who's pissed off at the end of that scene is 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 Ibis. So that everybody knew I had just rewritten that scene to answer your question. But I can't answer the question without you understanding the backstory of what it was having on set. So I came in, everyone knew I had written that scene. Right. You know, everybody was you know cool with it. So it, there wasn't a lot of people absorbing any of those moments i think certainly your day was and demora was and i was because we were very anchored in in what we were about to perform but mm-hmm. when you looked outside of us there wasn't that sense at all um it was it was very much um you know like i said they had only given me
3: right
2: i think half a day to turn around uh that art and so for me and you know In those circumstances, that meant I had to, you know, I was writing Bilkwis's stuff um, with a young lady that she meets there and trying to recourse her character so that she wasn't worshiping a white Jesus. And I was so focused on trying to save that character and also finally have uh, DeMore's character, Ibis, do something other than just. Mm -hmm voiceover work explaining something to people to have him actually just be a character you know to, to see him in the flesh yeah that was yeah that
1: was different it was yeah, different he, right he was eating the body at one point I'm promising exactly the body at one point I, I kind of looked away at that one
2: He, that's exactly right so it, I you know for me I didn't want to just do speeches on the show he doesn't want to just do you know voiceover mm-hmm. speeches on the show so those were really for me I I was trying to accomplish those things in that scene, but to say that that was met with open arms is, is, you know, I got it done, but, you know, believe me, the showrunner was like, go do your black shit, man, whatever. And the studio network was kind of doing the same,
1: man. And that was
2: pretty much the, the person, the person who was really on team and was there, I can honestly say was Rodney Barnes. He was Mm -hmm. definitely my counterpart. In uh, that work done, and he's the person I wrote it with. And the uh, the young lady who actually uh, wrote that episode at DD, um, she was very open and and very much on board uh, to, you know, allow us to do what we wanted to do. But by the same token, she was formerly a playwright, a very talented writer. And this was her first time writing for television. Oh, wow. So if you look at, you know, so I think there was a bit of deference that was given there because she was – finding herself with the two most accomplished writers on the show. And that was me and Rodney Barnes, who've both been in the writer's guild for more than 25 years. So we were, you know, working with this talented young writer. Um, and, you know, those scenes in her episode that had to do with the characters of color got handed over to me and Rodney. And that was that. All right.
3: um, I have a question for you, Orlando. Orlando. Uh, Let's say you know they start over season four with, uh, you know, a new executive producer, new showrunners. Would you return <laughs> to American Guys?
2: American Guys is done for me. Okay. Because the studio and the network aren't going to change.
3: Mm, that makes sense. And there
2: is a mm, yeah. there is a yeah. there's a culture here. You know, I wish this was about me. I mean, I, I like to point. Right. I really point out to people mm. all the time, like this. I think it's cute when people think like, well, you think this is the first time I've encountered racism in Hollywood? What do you, you, what that's the, <laughs> that's adorable. Mm-hmm. I've, I, I've been looking at that in many different forms all the time. But even on this show, uh, during season one, when the show was well-received and we were taking our victory lap, mm-hmm. I sat and had conversations at various functions and parties with executives who were like completely not being insulting. They had no evil intention, but they were communicating to me mm-hmm. that hey, we man, we really this Mister Wednesday and uh, Shadow Moon following around is all we care about. But that that speech you did sure was something. That was really something. Well, good for you, man. We had no expectation that uh, something like that would come out, but you know, yay and wow. You know, hey, that so they were clear. clear. That the characters that they cared about were not the characters of color, and they told me that to my face, but they told it to me as a compliment, right? They, they didn't they didn't realize what they were saying. They didn't realize that the subtext of their words amounted to this. It wasn't said in anger, it wasn't said to be mean. So though I understood what it was said and how it was said, I wasn't gonna go run around and point, hey, this person's racist because they said why? What for? That, that that's that's ignorant, right? So and, and and who does that serve? That don't serve. That serves no one. And, and I, I don't care. So for me, I already knew they didn't care about the characters of color. They told me that to my face. So when I had conversations with people who say, well, you know, Fremantle doesn't care about the characters of colors," I'm like, yeah, I know that. Well, you're not telling me something that's a secret fool. <laughs> yeah. But look at the treatment, though. The treatment is more important here. At the end of the day, I've been on American Gods for three years. They've been sitting on my television rights for three years. In those three years, I've worked 21 days on camera performing Mr. Nancy. I've worked seven days a year on average. Okay? All the other work I could have gone to do, I couldn't do. Got a phone call about Avatar 2, Mm -hmm. my availability... American Gods mm-hmm. always goes over schedule. No. Carnival Row? Pfft, nah. I'm still mad about Carnival Row because I love that show so much. Every it, it makes no sense to run through all the things that I could have gone to do that I was excited about that I couldn't do because of American Gods. So my point is they didn't pay me three years worth of work. So it's not like that right. situation. They paid me for a year. And then they didn't pay me for all the other work I did, except the minimums that they got mm. required to pay. So again, they didn't write my character and then threw the job of doing writing those characters of color to me and got mad at me for doing it and requested that I go against my guild to do that work. And then at the end of that, they... <laughs> They do the craziest mess, which is you could have told me that if if you weren't going to pick up the option, if that's really what this is about, options, then why didn't you tell me that in April, May, June, July, or August? Why did that come out in uh, September 10th? Why then? And why didn't the studio call me? Why did I get a call from the network? I don't work for the network. I work for the studio. And the answer to all those questions is that's because you spent the entire off season saying to my management and to me, of course, you're going to write Mr. Nancy. Of course, you're going to be a writer on the show. Of course, you're going to be a producer on the show. Yes, we want to renegotiate your acting salary, too. Man, We wouldn't even be here in season three if it wasn't for the work you did in season two. So, yes, we know. Yes, yes. we. we that was a mess. That was season two. But in season three, we're going to fix all of this. So. It's that behavior, right? It, 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 it's it's that behavior that's the problem. Because if you'll do that to me, you'll do that to anybody. And you can choose any reason you want. That's not equitable treatment. In my case, you're doing it because I'm black. But In somebody else's case, you might do it because she's female or you might do it because this person's gay or you might do it because this person has sweaty palms and you don't like people with sweaty palms. Whatever your reason is for treating somebody inequitably, you shouldn't be able to do that when you're the biggest entertainment company in the entire entertainment business. Fremantle is the biggest entertainment company in the game. If they can't treat people equitably, then nobody is going to treat people equitably. That's what it's about.
0: And and I'm only bringing this up because it's, you know, been written about. um, It was actually on Deadline's website. Uh, You are looking into litigation with Fremantle. Is is that accurate?
2: Right now, the Fremantle's essential problem right now is SAG. Um, SAG's investigation, litigating these sorts of things is always tricky because the question is, what do you want? So you can go get a lawyer and you can go scream for this and you can sue and get money and all that kind of thing. That, yes. But what I want is equitable treatment and equitable treatment comes with groups. It, it's, it's, again, it's not about me. You should not be able to take an actor off of the table
3: right.
2: and not pay them. You shouldn't be able to lie to them about what you're going to do for them. And make all these promises and then renege on all of them and not pay them at all. That shouldn't be what happens. That needs to happen. If they can do that to me, then who is the Screen Actors Guild? That's what the Screen Actors Guild is investigating. That's what – and if the Screen Act, – we're all members of the Screen Actors Guild. If the Screen Actors Guild can, can assist, and I believe they will, in forcing this company to treat people equitably, then I will have had what I want which is if my daughter goes to work for this company or some subsidiary of this company, as these very large companies of this size all conglomerate and they all buy up other small companies, but there's a culture here that no one is talking about. And I'm not the first person to be a victim of. One of the first people to hit me up and go, had the same problem, Marlon Wayans. Boom, as soon as he saw it. If you look at Michaela Cole, who did Chewing Gum in the UK. Michaela Cole did an address for the Edinburgh Film Festival in 2018 where she outlines the racist treatment that she experienced and the sexual assault that she experienced from a company connected to the story of Fremantle. Fremantle openly, openly discussed for, a, for years mm-hmm. all the work they had to do to rebrand our now president Donald Trump to create an image around him that wasn't wrought with all of the racism and the misogyny that he had been known for. Fremantle actively covered those things up because they owned the apprentice and reshaped that man's image to the image that we know that people know him as today. And if they had not done that on the apprentice, I think everyone knows and agrees he would not be the president of the United States. There is a culture there. And that culture is, is the is the very thing that we claim we're fighting against. Here we are in a diversity revolution in Hollywood, but the biggest entertainment company in the game has this history, and ain't nobody gonna say no. we're just gonna let that ride. Yeah.
0: Well, Arlindo, I appreciate you really being candid with fans about your departure from American Gods. But what do you hope that we can all learn from what happened?
2: It is true. We are we are stronger together. And we have to stand together for these things. And I think we have to not stand mm-hmm. along racial lines or gender lines. I mean, when I look at treatment in Hollywood, I have to say that people who have it worst is people who uh, suffer from dis- who have a disability. Yeah. Um, you know, that's 20% of the U.S. I'm sorry. I, I, my family with disability, they're that's their normal. Yeah. How is my normal better than their normal? But think about this when you think about treatment. Here's what they do for people with disabilities. Half the time, they can't even get into the audition because the audition doesn't have a disability access to it. That's part of the problem. So then can you imagine them not letting people of color or women in the room because there wasn't an access point for them to come in? But see, people with disability deal with that all the time. And then they give somebody who is an able-bodied person the job. And then they give that able-bodied person an award for pretending to be disabled. That's blackface. Hmm. That's what that is. Now, that doesn't mean that an able-bodied person can't play somebody who's disabled. I, I've done that before. I know what that is. But it means that that shouldn't be the norm. Right. I'm not saying we got to wipe out – Tom Hanks is brilliant as far as Gump. I'm not saying we, we got to wipe that out, but what I am saying is – we we can hire disabled people to play these roles and i promise you they're going to bring depth and insight and beauty and humanity to a way and to it in a way that i wouldn't ever see unless i spend a lot of time with a disabled person because they have a life experience i don't have and that's the diversity of storytelling we're talking about so again what's important for us to know is that we can achieve these things but we have to achieve them By making it clear to companies like this that they can't hire these type of people who hold these views and pretend on the other side, you can't not be from the culture, pretend to be from the culture, then make decisions about the culture and then treat people who you encounter who are from the culture like dogs and say, hey, (laughs) but I'm down for the culture. No, you're not. You're a disrespectful asshole who doesn't care about anybody but themselves, who wouldn't do the bare minimum, which is treat somebody with respect and dignity. If y'all can't do that, what are we doing here? So for me, that's what's important. And the more people shrink and the more people duck and only think about themselves, then to me, the less artistry it is. Artistry's whole function, its whole job is hopefully to uplift and bring together masses of people, but it's to help. It's, a, it's to help uplift. It's to help others, that's what it's about. It's to to help the ones we leave behind, to to, to create a a better world when we leave it than the one we found. That's the Mm. fucking purpose. It ain't about watches and bling and bling and slacking asses, I ain't got nothing against all that. I'm like, yay, (laughs) yay, all that too, all that too. But we do have to do some step back and analysis and we do have to look at the legacy that we are leaving, because if not, we lead young women to human trafficking willingly, with the belief system that that's a better life simply because of some arbitrary reason. For me, those are those are the things that are important to me. Those are the reasons why I, I love. Them what I do and I've done plenty of silly stuff in my life and I, and I hope to do more of it. But I think the takeaway is that, and, and, and that shouldn't just be a thing in Hollywood that should be in any walk of life. And frankly, when I think we get into schools and churches is when it's really going to get interesting because those are places where the balance of powers is, is way out of whack. Um, and now those are places where people are experiencing lots of crazy things um, that they're afraid to talk about because of how it will affect their future.
0: Ryan, Angelica, do you have any final questions before we wrap up?
3: Um, Well, no, we're talking about, uh, you know, what what we can take away, but what would be your suggestion for a call to action?
2: I think Fremantle has to deal with the chick-eggly scenario, and they have to come to the table with an understanding that they're going to treat people equitably. And frankly, not lie, and that they're going to be accountable to the diversity components that they sell around. They've been telling people forever that they care about these issues and they care about these characters, but you didn't care enough about them to write for them. So we as an audience have to hold them accountable. And I think if that means boycotting stars for you, that means They got to get rid of the showrunner for you. For me, it's not my job to define the call of action for other people. It's my job to get to the bottom of the truth. Um, And that's what I'm doing with the Screen Actors Guild, to do the part of it that is mine, which is to hold them accountable as best we can as a union to treat us equitably. But for fans, I think fans have to decide if this breach of trust, which is what they've experienced, means that they have a problem with that studio or a problem with that network that's that's my belief. Um,
0: so, what is your thoughts about the Oscar So White conversation and the parallels to Tyler Perry's comments about creating your own and not asking for a seat at the table?
2: I mean <clears throat> I think the diversity is more than black and white is really the first part of that. And until we stood looking at it as such we're going to keep having this conversation in a circle. I think Mr. Perry is right in the sense that, yeah, you need financing to do that. And hopefully his studio will become a place that will find those voices. Um, thus far, there's been a lot of discussion about all these things, but there really just hasn't been a place that will step up and fund uh, those voices and those, those types of stories and storytellers. So you still find yourself talking to the same people um, who held their previous biases who are now in a political climate that suggests that they need to hold a a broader, more um, enlightened point of view. And I just don't know how they're going to do that if they didn't hold that view before. So it seems to me that what often happens is now they just hire people that they believe Will absolve them of being accused of being racist. So let me go get Shonda Rhimes, or let me go get this person, let me go get that person, uh, because if I do a deal with them, then nobody can call me racist. But as talented as Ms. Rhimes is, um, and, and she is amazingly talented and wonderful, you know, you know, I still think there are other black female storytellers out there that you could, you know, <laughs> you could give a voice to. So why, why are you know? Why is N.K. Jameson still fighting to get her voice heard? She's a prolific and profound and beautiful voice. Um, but I don't see any black studio running to finance her. Right. So until that happens, I think it's just a lot of nice talk, but I don't see anybody really stepping up, giving diverse people the ability to tell stories. And I also think that they're not really having a real conversation about what's happening, not just to the women of color, but what's happening mm-hmm. to men of color. Black men are the most hunted individuals in the country, and it's totally okay to throw us in jail or shoot us down with no evidence whatsoever. And that's fine to everybody.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm waiting for I- I'm waiting for someone other than some Black women to say that's not okay that it's not okay to murder their sons and murder their husbands and murder their uncles and just get away with it. Plenty of black women have stepped up to do that. But in this revolution, we find ourselves focused on this thing or that thing, but it's never all of us, right? It's never, it's never everybody deserves equitable treatment. It's just this person for this moment and this person for that moment. And I believe we do need to tell our stories, but I, I believe that we as storytellers need, as people of color, need to admit that we have the economic power to do whatever it is we want to do. But are we going to support each other? I mean, are we going to support? Are we going to support prolific mm. black voices the mm. same way we support Cardi B? Right,
0: okay. preach.
2: I mean, I don't, I don't know, right? I haven't seen that yet. I mean, I see a celebration of a lot of things, right? But you know, some tricky celebrations to celebrate. You know, someone who openly talks about robbing people.
1: I'm going to have to change my ringtone. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I'm going to change my ringtone.
0: Right. I feel bad now. We're like, oh. Last question. I know that obviously you are more than just a TV actor. You're involved in several projects and you have your hands in different ventures. Anything set for 2020 that we should know about, that our listeners should know about?
2: I'm really excited about The Good Lord Bird, um, based on James McBride's book, uh, The Good Lord Bird, uh, that was a national, uh, award, uh, nominated and, uh, and winning book. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and Ethan Hawke invited me into that, uh, project and, uh, it's a, it's an incredible project that we did over at Showtime. It's a, uh, eight part, uh, limited series. Um, really excited about that project, um. Anything you have ever heard about Ethan Hawke is all true. One of the loveliest souls I have ever encountered, like just a just a incredible man, man. Like I, I one of the most fun I've had working. I, I can't say enough good things about not only the experience but the group of people they put together on the project. So, look out for the Good Lord Bird. That's that's really dope. Um and uh, the legendary C J Mac and my man Snoop Dogg and I have a project that we're working together that's uh, C J Mack authored. Uh, called badass kids which I really love as well uh, and uh, yeah you know CJ's mom ran a group home for kids and he wrote a project about that uh, a really awesome animated project and Snoop brought it to my attention and we sort of were like yeah let's, let's definitely do this so excited about that uh, uh, as well. Uh, I don't think, I think that it will be in production on that in 2020. So it won't be out in 2020, but we're on it, uh, which is obviously exciting. Um, and, uh, and also just the way we're going about doing that project with CJ Mack is really dope because aside from the musical elements, we go from city to city with that one. And we do a lot of, uh, seminars and mentorship. So it's sort of like during the day you, you have a mentorship in place to try and help people achieve the things they want to achieve in their lives. And then by night, you know, you get a, you know, Snoop Dogg, right. CJ Mack, you know, Orlando Jones party as it were. Um, so it's a, it's an exciting project to do just because of the way it's put together. And, uh, you know, CJ's Mac is a brilliant dude. So excited to bring that story to, to life. And those are, I think the two things that are, that I'm talking about right now. And I'll fill you in on the other madness later. Um, as a lot of stuff, uh, uh, Maps out in terms of my schedule uh, by February. Right now, I'm trying to steal time. Like, how much time is this, you know, American god stars thing going to take? <laughs> Fremantle thing, really, which is really what it's about, right? Um, and uh, and just making sure that. Uh, and and I'm also I'm gonna go do uh, LA's Finest with Gabrielle Union. Uh-huh.
1: Oh, man. Oh, nice. right.
2: you talking yeah. about my Yeah. That is, yeah. yeah. Mean, what? That's going to be exciting. I'm going to go do that with Gabby. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She hit me up and she was like, yo. And I was like, girl, I was like, hunty you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> say no. I know you're playing me. Right <laughs> <here." laughs> yeah. Like, I would. Uh,
1: that's what
0: yeah, happened that's after sure. that Twitter yeah. exchange was, was the LA's finest hookup after that Twitter exchange. Well, you know,
2: Gabrielle and I oh, have not yeah. known each other for, you know, 20 years. We've hosted events together. Like, yeah. you know, that's that that's my girl. So girl. I, It was kind of one of those things. I think that it, it popped up um, uh, after we, you know, cause we had spoken and all that kind of stuff. And we were really down the road, just looking at the, the things that we both want to achieve for Fremantle. And frankly, everything I've said about what I want to achieve for Fremantle and SAG, she's a part of. So that's really, you know, something we're both passionate about. And then out of nowhere, she hit me up and she was like, I got a crazy question for you. And then I was like, what? <laughs> and she was like, we wrote this character what you want to do and I was like you know there's only Gabby she's like <laughs> I wrote this character you know the, the showrunners are really excited you know feel free to say no but I wanted to see what you thought and I was like feel free to say no I'm like who are you talking to right now <laughs> <laughs> I was like I'll be there soon well soon. I'm
1: hoping you're putting uh, I'm hoping you're putting that uh, the cop uniform back
2: on doing what the cop uniform back on
1: i'm hoping you're doing like a fbi yeah the cop. yeah i'm hoping you're going back into your,
2: your aging, i will i will uh, be back uniform. i will be back in the uniform no doubt uh, I, 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 will, I, will, I will definitely be back in in, in oh, the cop world again I, I really like cop world <laughs> nice. uh primarily because i'm a cop so I, I really uh uh i got sworn in down in plaquem county in uh 2000
3: and oh my
2: goodness <laughs> I did um, not
3: know that. Wow.
1: What? Hey, yeah. drop a bomb. Drop a I bomb. I did not
2: know that. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, was, I was doing some movies down in Louisiana at the time, and uh, I'd shot a movie with um, Michael Douglas, and I'd done this thriller, um, and I was shooting in Shreveport, and then I went to New Orleans, and we did Cirque du Freak, and then after that, I went and did this movie called Seconds Apart in in. Um, Hamilton, Baton Rouge area. And I was in New Orleans for like a year. And so, you know, security is always the cops, you know, they, so, you know, we just talking trash and they're talking about how difficult it is. And I'm like, I bet you I could pass the test. And they're like, get out of here. I, you know, so I was like, I bet you I could. And they're like, we take you shooting, we'll see. So I passed the test and went shooting and did all the things. And, um, they took me down to the sheriff's office and swore uh, me in the special assistant to the sheriff and they're like, we can't believe we're giving you a real badge and I was like, so you won't be on set sitting around talking about how hard it is for you no more and that it can't be done. So um, I spent my off time to do that uh, and became an officer. So uh, uh, I like the ins and outs of it just because the cop world is more complicated and people make it in procedurals and, uh, and I know what I'm doing with that gun so I really like those elements because one of the most fascinating things about officers particularly people who really know what they're doing is they just be talking to you but what they're doing with the gun while they're talking to you is crazy <laughs> cuz like cuz the guys who come from military background or who really do honor and respect that they're carrying this thing that can harm people mm-hmm they, the way they treat it is different. You know what I mean? Like it, they, they're cleaning it, they're moving it, but it's just the, the way their hands move. like rak, 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 chop, It's just all the sounds of it. And I got fascinated with that because I was like, cause I asked the guy in San Francisco who had taken me on a ride along and I'd spent a couple of weeks with him and he was always messing with his gun, making sure it was operational, it was cool, whatever. It was just kind of his thing. And I said to him, why, why are you always messing with the gun? and he said three reasons one when people see you know what you're doing with the gun it makes them think twice about how they move in front of you he goes but it stops me from having to point my gun at someone that's very different i don't want to point my gun he goes and lastly if you carry the power to take someone's life in your hands then it's your job to be diligent about it and i i I, it stuck with me because he was one of the few people I'd ever met who really took the fact that he carried that power. Seriously, he was a man of deep faith and conviction. So he was always, it was always about the Bible. It was always about philosophy. It was always about, you know, these ideas that I didn't associate with cops. And um, I really credit him for sort of opening up my eyes that way. And that's why I like playing those type of characters But I like to make sh- And that's one of my big takeaways is just, the way he dealt with that gun and how powerful it was to, to see somebody handle themselves and handle that machine that way. Cause to him, it was just like a phone. It was just a piece of tech. And he was like, this is some tech that I use in my job. And this tech allows me to do this, this, and this, but I need to be diligent about this yeah. tech. He's like, you run diagnosis on your phone, on your computer, right? You run malware checks, you know, <laughs> I was like, word. Okay. I've, I mean, he really, you know, it, it, an interesting man, and uh, definitely a man of uh, faith and conviction, so he had a real impact. And uh, and I decided that whenever I played cops, that was what I was going to try and bring to it. And that's what you were looking at in Frank Irving in Sleepy Hollow. He was a disciple, a nonbeliever who becomes a believer. He was a disciple, and it was uh, he was always really concerned that he had this thing in his hand, and he had the ability to take a life, and he didn't know if he was worthy of that. Um, and it just, you know, it haunted him.
3: Wow. Can we get a whole podcast episode on you being a an cop and your <laughs> ride-alongs? Right. 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 I like character work, man. Yeah, that's the little, fun. Little. That's my
2: job. <laughs> I like to come up with it and do it and then have people see it and not know why they're responding, but know that there's something there that just feels different. And that's, to me, yeah. the best part about my job. Um, and sometimes I get to do it with my words and sometimes I do it completely with somebody else's words. I don't even care whose words it is. I just like figuring out the character.
0: Well, Orlando, thank you so much for taking the time out of your super busy schedule to talk to Black Girl Nerds. Thank you for always supporting us and um, just for, you know, all that you do. We wish you the best. And don't be a stranger. Come back.
1: Yes. Yep. Come back. Drop some more knowledge. All you
0: got. Call somebody. No, I'm definitely come back. You know
2: I love y'all. I mean, come on listen I grew up with a bunch of black girl nerds so as soon as y'all popped up on the scene I was like oh I think I know who they is uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a product of black girl nerds so it's um it's always uh honestly it's it's a joy to talk to you guys and and I'm hoping we get to do more stuff together in the future and you know, thank you for you know allowing me the time I appreciate it
0: The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.